Welcome to the latest episode of Lecture Theatre. With us today we have Lynette Schwa, an Associate Professor of Law at the National University of Singapore, as well as the Head of Law and Liberal Studies at Yale and US College. So Professor Chua has authored two books to date. The first is a really influential ethnography of the LGBTQ movement in Singapore, titled Mobilising Gay Singapore. It came out in 2014. And just this year, uh, she published a new book on the politics of love in Myanmar, an account of the LGBTQ movement uh, in another Southeast Asian country. So thank you so much for being with us today, Professor Chua. Thank you for having me. So, Professor Chua, tell us a bit more about your life story. Why and how did you become an academic? Um, well, I started out... Um, well, actually, I grew up in Malaysia and I uh, went through the public school system in the Chinese uh, language stream in, uh, in East Malaysia, primary one through primary six. And then I completed my uh, secondary education in what is known as independent Chinese schools in Malaysia. So I did six years of that. Then after that, um, I wanted uh, to go overseas, and I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, do an undergraduate degree in the U.S. I focused on journalism. So uh, that was about, uh, that took me about three and a half years. And then I was a journalist for a little while um, in the States, and then I, I uh, wanted to, I guess at the time I didn't really, wasn't planning on becoming academic. I was doing what I felt I wanted to do uh, as a young person, exploring different uh, interests. And so uh, shortly after I, uh, well for a while after I was working at a newspaper in the States, I wanted to try something different and I, in a way I wanted to be back in Southeast Asia. So. I uh, had an interest in studying law, and so that's how I uh, uh, applied to uh, NUS Law, and I got accepted, and then law became uh, my second uh, degree, and I pursued that. Um, but I never had the plan of um, becoming a lawyer. I was not interested in, in, be, in practicing at the law firm. I was always just interested in, uh, in the intellectual side of studying law and, and understanding uh, analysis of issues and things like that. Um, so after I finished uh, law school, I did not go to a law firm. I, I worked uh, outside for two years and then uh, one thing led to another and I uh, went on to go overseas to pursue my PhD. I think at that point I felt that uh, it was something that I, I wanted to do, um, and so that was uh, 2005. So the PhD program I was accepted into was the Jurisprudence and Social Policy, known as JSP, at the University of California, Berkeley. And that really uh, started my path or my journey into becoming an academic. I, I fell in love with um, doing, what, doing all the things that academics do, research, writing, uh, teaching, and so that's how I, I, I ended up also uh, being hired by my alma mater and U.S. law. And, and then so I joined NUS, uh, or rather I started teaching at NUS and, uh, after, my, after I graduated from a PhD in 2011. Yeah. Do you think having this kind of non-linear path and having exposure to kind of three views 
law, journalism, and then sociology has kind of made you a more insightful writer and thinker? I'm not too sure. I think maybe it's made me uh, a different kind of legal scholar. I think I wasn't interested in uh, following the path of what many of my colleagues uh, do uh, at NUS Law and do well, um, either doing uh, legal theory or doing sort of doctrinal case analysis, your convention sort of legal scholar. I, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, and that's why uh, JSP at, uh, at UC Berkeley was was a good fit for me. Uh, maybe it had a great influence on the way that I thought about the research that I wanted to do and perhaps I also felt that you know I was never really in sync with you know my so-called cohort if you can go by that I'm not sure what cohort I am and so there's no sense of you know I must some a lot of my students like to think about oh how would I be in comparison to my peers mm -hmm. and I, I never really thought about it in that way so I just did pursue what I thought was uh, important and and uh, interesting to me yeah and so Let's talk a bit more about your field of study, um, which I think we might broadly characterize as law and society. So for listeners who are less familiar, uh, can you tell us more about this field and how it has developed in Singapore? Well, um, law and society scholarship, I think it's one of those fields where in which when you talked about its origins, uh, every sort of research tradition, uh, North American or even American and Canadian, uh, the continental uh, continental Europe or the, uh, the British and different countries in Asia have their own origin stories of you know how they started to have a, a tradition of doing law and society research but I think there are some common strands across them one of them would be that they're all interested in the interactions and the relationship between well guess what law and society, <laughs> yes. law and society. but that means that uh, the way they try to understand law is beyond understanding the interpretation of statutes uh, analyzing the judgments by the courts uh, or making sort of prescriptive philosophical arguments uh, about how the law ought to be uh, we're really interested in understanding what happened or social processes in which law might be involved and embedded in the lives of of, uh, of, of actors. So how it's not just about whether uh, an argument uh, or sorry, uh, um, uh, let's say the, the judgment of a court had been uh, correctly uh, written uh, or whether the statute had been incorrectly interpreted, rather, is trying to understand how a law that's on the books actually plays out in, in real life. Does it really have any impact in changing or regulating the conduct, thinking, and, and behavior of people? Um, how does it change the way we think about ourselves, if at all? And, if peop and do people actually use the law, and they do, in what ways? That those ways may involve... Uh, actions away from going to court. It could be uh, the way, it changes the way you relate to your employer, for instance, or change the way you think about yourself as a citizen and so on. So it, it involves looking at, uh, and so not just former legal actors, not just former legal arenas that we can imagine to be courts, lawyers, and judges, uh, although we do study that as well in law and society, but also looking at uh, uh, 
the lives of activists and lives of ordinary people and how they understand law and interact with it. And that means that the meaning and their interpretation of law may diverge quite greatly from the way uh, the judges or lawyers will understand it or how the drafters of law intend it to be used. Yeah. So have legal scholars and students in NUS and EONUS been kind of receptive to this approach to legal studies? Um, I think that um, perhaps, you know, I'm not a, uh, uh, the kind of work that I do is not so common within the faculty, mm. um, but I think that there are people who are interested in what I do. They may not necessarily see themselves going down that mm. path, uh, but I say I've been fortunate to have found colleagues and students who are interested, although, you know, it's not in great numbers, um, it's a little bit uh, far left in a sense, yeah. Well, so let's talk maybe a bit about your first book, uh, mm. Mobilizing Gay Singapore. And in the book, you argued that pragmatic resistance has not structured the way in which activists in Singapore pursue their goals. So, I mean, it's just been a few years since 2014, uh, yet so much seems to have changed. Uh, we're on the cusp of a new constitutional challenge against 377A. So I was wondering if you can just reflect on the book and how your thinking has evolved or been born out by events since? Yeah, very recently somebody else just uh, wrote me an email and asked me if I thought that, uh, you know, what some of the groups are doing in Singapore now since mm. the publication of the book can still be explained as uh, performing or enacting pragmatic mm. resistance. And my answer to that is, you know, uh, since the publication of the book, I've not actually conducted much field work uh, serious fieldwork research on the uh, LGBT groups in Singapore. I, I, the only piece I did after that in terms of original fieldwork was uh, following the first set of uh, litigation uh, through the courts. That was the only other sort of extra piece of work that I did since the publication of the book. So I, you know, what I have to say doesn't really sort of, isn't really grounded in, in uh, sort of thorough mm. uh, analysis of the data. Um, when I, you know, talked about pragmatic resistance in the book, I was, it's not, it's never intended as a prescription or sort of a normative argument as to, you know, this is what the groups should be doing. Uh, rather, it was a, a, a theoretical framework for understanding. So this is how we can understand what I've learned uh, about the movement from the 90s up to the point that I, I finished up. I feel so it's a way of theorizing about the data rather than you know sort of looking ahead and saying this is you know pragmatic resistance and this is what you should uh, you should do so yes indeed uh, if you look at the strategies and tactics that uh, have taken place since the publication of the book uh, one uh, some people might take the view that well maybe this is no longer a theoretical framework that can explain mm -hmm. what's going on because you know. Uh, maybe uh, the, the 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 expressions uh, and the actions of Ping Dot may have evolved, and look, we're at so many more lawsuits challenging the constitution. Um, another view, which I might lean toward, but I my view is nowhere conclusive, is to say that that's these these are just changes. Uh, in strategies and tactics that can still be explained using pragmatic resistance because over the years in, in accumulation the 
uh, the boundaries, perhaps at least in the perception of activists, have shifted, have changed, and so what was not seen as uh, advisable to carry out ten years mm -hmm. ago now is uh, accepted as a way of doing things or uh, accepted or to the activists uh, something they're more comfortable uh, doing because even if you compare in the 1990s up to when Pingdot first started for instance you know the strategies in Texas have changed but that's part of the uh, explanatory power I think of the theoretical framework of pragmatic resistance but I stand to be corrective if you know I'm not sort of saying this must explain everything that moves forward I am just um, thinking that perhaps it can still be used uh, but you know who knows somebody else might have a different view yeah. so the boundaries of what is pragmatic have not shifted oh um, no um, maybe to it, it, the, the thing that I hope has people do remember is that it's not an objective shifting necessarily. Mm. It sometimes is what you perceive in the subjective interpretation of activism or what has changed. So perhaps people feel that it's, you know, we, they have, there have been a few constitutional challenges while they were not successful in the courts, but hey, you know, it's been done. Why, now that boundary has been shifted, maybe there's a perception that it's doable and we can try again. I mean, that's, that's what I'm thinking. And maybe some activists, that's what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Interesting. So let's turn to talk a bit more about your latest book that came out earlier this year, The Politics of Love in Myanmar. So, I mean, it's been a while since I read it, but I really enjoyed it. It's a really bo good book to recommend to our listeners. But for those of us who haven't read it, do you think can sum up the argument very quickly? I'll try quickly. <laughs> yes. uh, a lot of times when people talk about human rights or they study human rights, uh, you often encounter those uh, different camps of different kinds of uh, arguments about, you know, all human rights are universal and they are intended to be a salvation for certain problems or, or, or panacea for certain problems. Another camp would say, you know, uh, there are many problems with human rights in, in themselves. Um, they create uh, inequalities in, in, in distribution of resources and they are, you know, uh, external discourses that are imported into a country or society that may not be um, familiar with it. So, um, and oftentimes some of these arguments are made normatively, uh, sort of, sort of uh, based on sort of legal theory or, or uh, philosophical arguments. Some of these uh, arguments are based on uh, research that are grounded in ethnography or other kinds of empirical data. So I come from the, so my approach comes from the latter in terms of grounding the research in ethnography and trying to understand rather instead of what um, human rights mean uh, or what they should mean in the instruments or the former instruments, I was looking at how, you know, uh, to people on the ground who come into contact with human rights, how they interpret it, how they understand it, and how they make it relevant or choose not to make it relevant in some way, in some uh, in some cases in their lives or in the issues that they care about. So this is sort of the background, sort of the approach, uh, that I'm coming from. Uh, so through the field work that I did among the activists and sort and related. Uh, and people related in organizations that are related to the LGBT movement, um, I try to understand um, how the LGBTQ movement came about, how human rights 
was played a role in the in the uh, practice or the uh, formation and the perpetuation of the movement strategies and tactics and what sort of consequential effects uh, that came out of you know using or practicing human rights, putting human rights in action. So what I found was um, the argument, main argument that I make was that um, uh, human rights practice for these activists uh, was in formed sort of a, a way of life for them in the sense that um, it changed the, the way they understood who they are. Uh, it gave them a different meaning about uh, their, uh, their place in society. And it was through that that they managed to come together and saw themselves as being linked through a certain identity uh, that's co uh, co uh, coalesced around uh, human rights, which is in this case LGBTQ identities. And so forming the identity of LGBTQ activists and through that a movement is formed and then it's through the formation of this movement that they slowly try to make claims against the state. So I'm not just looking at were they successful at making state claims, but how it started with you know the way they understood and felt about themselves. And integral to this analysis is the is that human rights practice is not just about understanding the substantive meanings of human rights. Or for instance, what does equality for all mean? What does human dignity mean? Those are all important in sort of under, in sort of in in uh, making in adapting human rights to the local context and, and put that inter interaction with local norms and local beliefs and understandings that's important but uh, human rights practice also in is intricately involved uh, in, uh, weaved into relationships and emotions so to understand human rights is also to feel uh and and and, and uh, feel about what human rights mean mm -hmm. to you is also to about building bonds and creating fellowship and friendship and creating identity sort of an affinity bond as well and those were all integral to the uh, what I call emotional fealty that they have to human rights and uh, and uh, emotional bond to each other as activists so these were all integral to the perpetuation the movement of course to the practice of human rights itself which are then sort of building blocks or foundational to a movement being able to move forward with claims, whether or not those claims are successful, um, they would need to rely on the sort of collective action. So mm -hmm. I, I probably do it better uh, explaining in the book, but that's what I, mm -hmm. um, th those are the things that I would think are important to me if you ask me um, about the book, so, like uh, in, in this conversation, yeah. So was there a moment where you came to realize that emotion and kind of effect would be central to your argument? Or was that always a hypothesis you had? No, I, it's, this is completely arising mm -hmm. from the field work. I, did, I, I went to the field not thinking that it would be... Uh, not thinking that it would be... I wasn't looking for it. It just mm -hmm. came to me through the, through the field work, through the interviews. Uh, and over time, I felt that this was a very important theme and mm -hmm. I started to, of course, uh, uh, explore the literature but also to analyze the interview data and all the supplementary data that I have more closely with that in mind. Yeah. And do you consider an alternative kind of theoretical frameworks? Of course, you know, a very different person mm -hmm. doing this research may have a completely different mm -hmm. take uh, because that's why it's called interpretive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fieldwork, I think that um, 
this is just my and I could go back and look at the data and tell a very different story mm. and it could still be quite persuasive mm. and convincing but this is a story that I felt very strongly is the version that mm. I uh, wanted to tell mm. yeah and I mean it's, tell, tell us more about the Myanmar context is there any particular challenge or reward to kind of doing a few work in Myanmar well um this is where I sort of reflect on my positionality mm. as a researcher. Um, I don't, uh, I mean, there's a language issue, and then there, I'm an outsider, I'm, you know, not a Burmese person. So all these are considerations that any researcher would have, mm. so positionality issues when they go into the field, and I think these are issues that I, I, I thought about a lot throughout the field work. I mean, similarly for the Singaporean context, although it's easier not to be seen as an outsider um, being Malaysian and sort of speaking the, and, and you know, having lived in Singapore for before. And so, I, but you know, in some ways, I, of course, was still an outsider, yeah. But I think the Myanmar project made me reflect much more than I did in the Singaporean project. And what does that do, kind of being an outsider to the way you, you know, conduct yourself as a researcher? I think that. Um, well, there's always been writings about it, you know, being the insider versus the sort of outsider. Of course, there are benefits to or advantages to being an insider. You have access, you understand, or you are seen as, you know, somebody who would be able to do research because you understand what the circumstances are rather than outsider. How do you know our situation? That mm. kind of, uh, of, of uh, criticism that you sometimes uh, might encounter. Uh, however, I cannot change the fact that I am not an insider, and so they also uh, people write about you know the uh, what are some of the advantages to being an outsider or what you can do as an outsider to make the most of your position. And I, I was never a, uh, I embraced the fact that I'm an outsider, and then in some ways, I think that and then as an outsider, you sometimes can notice things that insiders or people involved in the in the context that you are studying seem to take for granted right they, that never seem curious or they never seem to question is things are gone uh, are taken as assumed and I think as an outsider you oftentimes uh, are more curious about it. and all these sort of actions or words or behavior stand out to you and perhaps uh, you don't take them as for granted, and then you would want to pursue that a little bit more. And sometimes I think as an outsider also, you can ask questions that perhaps an insider, if they were to ask it, might be, might not be mm -hmm. appropriate. Um, yeah, so I think there are some, you know, uh, you, <laughs> you go in, you know you're an outsider, mm -hmm. so you just embrace it and see what you can make the most. Is there any story that's particularly memorable, moving? Okay. Um, I think you, and this goes back to when you asked me about, uh, you know, how emotions became uh, mm. important in the in the analysis. Um, there were moments in which, uh, prior to this encounter, I'm going to tell you that I noticed oh, emotions are important mm. and so on. But I guess it sort of solidified it for me in conducting the interview with one of the uh, uh, protect uh, what we call protagonists in the book. The the uh, the younger fella I opened with mm. in the story was the young boy from the barracks. Um, so I had a long interview with him. It took a couple hours, and then we went to lunch. Everybody was tired, <laughs> hungry, and then it continued into the early afternoon. And throughout his story, um, he, 
when he told it, it was full of emotions. It was, you know, it was told through. I mean, there were a lot of ups and downs in his life, and you feel very sad. And some moments, some moments you feel you see the humor coming through, and some moments you feel very happy for him. And I thought, well, this is, you know, the his life story is interwoven with the, um, uh, the 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 political turmoil in his country and some of the violence he has experienced. So the micro and macro are so interwoven through this guy's uh, story and emotions uh, really came through through that uh, interweaving of the micro uh, micro experience with the macro process. Yeah. Uh, so at your book launch in, I think, January, uh, one of the speakers, I think the Dean of NUS Law, alluded or referred to the Lenachua model. And if I recall correctly, you know, he characterized it as you know, really find, trying to find a greenfield topic, something that no one else has done before, and then just approaching it with laser-like focus and you know, committing to kind of empirical study in a very serious way. So tell us more about you know, this model and how you organize the project. So I, I did not come up that. with this name. Okay, I did yes. not realize there was such a model. <laughs> I, as I said, I just do what I think is important and what I want to do. And, okay. Um, and you know, being a very committed mm -hmm. law and society scholar I, and a qualitative scholar, I really take that very seriously mm -hmm. and 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 do my research through uh, field work and as much as I can, and of course through the analysis of what I learned uh, from the field. And I think that um, in a way, perhaps when other people talk about it in this way, I, I maybe it's. Um, doing it with commitment and not being afraid uh, that oh what is this good my for my career yeah. um, because you know nobody has written about it um, yeah. is this significant because nobody has <laughs> written about it uh, for me I, I I would say that um, maybe it's now I am a little bit more uh, I moved along a little bit in my career I feel that I'm gonna make it. It's my job to make it important. It's my job to make uh, people care about the topic uh, that I work on. Of course, you know, life may have been easier if I worked on a topic that's already super hot uh, and so on. But that's not what I, not the path that I chose. And so yeah, so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, but what's that feeling like? Because I mean, one one thing that struck struck me is that you know. Essentially, if you work in, in a context outside of you know, the United States and Western Europe, you, know, you, you, you may often be kind of the only person writing, perhaps in English, perhaps in any language, about a particular subject. So with the LGBTQ movement in Myanmar, well, I hope it's not the last work sure on it, but it is the only work at the moment and it might be for a while. So how do you have, think about that burden of representation? Mm. To be honest, I don't really think about it as a as a burden. It's probably a responsibility to to do uh, to do the fieldwork justice and do my interviewees or uh, research subjects uh, justice. I to say that it's a burden that I have to you know make sure the uh, that I do it right because it's going to be the only book. I, that's perhaps a little bit egotistical in, mm -hmm. in a way. I just think my it's my responsibility as a scholar just to do mm -hmm. do do the project uh, well. Yeah. Now, so your work touches on controversial social issues and, and your research situates yourself in the close proximity to activists. 
So, I mean, what has that been like for you, and what do you think should be the relationship between academia and activism? Um, you know, different scholars have different mm -hmm. approaches uh, to it. Some of them uh, are more engaged with the community uh, that they study, so they are activist scholars, and uh, so they not only write about the, the activism, but they also participate in it. So that's one way of doing scholarship and doing activism at the same time. For me, I wouldn't consider, I actually do not consider myself in that category. Uh, I consider myself as a scholar who is interested and care about the issues uh, advocated by the uh, activists that I study, but I'm certainly not involved and I don't think I have, I'm qualified to be involved uh, in the movement or in the, in the group. Unfortunately, I think that there may be some people, especially those who do not agree with the issues that are being advocated mm -hmm. by the groups that I study, who do not see a difference between studying mm -hmm. the activism and actually uh, being engaged in it. And then that tends to, and if you run into folks like that, people might think of you as being a controversial figure. Mm -hmm. I don't really think of myself in that way. I just think that I may be studying activists working on potentially controversial issues. I wish that people did not conflate it mm -hmm. in that way, but I can control the way uh, folks like to think about uh, these issues in Singapore, unfortunately, I think. Maybe it's because um, you know activism isn't as uh, in your face or as much talked about, and in some circles may be seen as, uh, or maybe seen as and treat, uh, has, uh, has this negative image. and um, But maybe things will change, I don't know. But uh, I, I, I know uh, what you're getting at. Uh, I, I, that's not how I see myself. Why? Because um, I, I'm just more interested in, yes. in studying, observing. That's mm -hmm. just my approach. Mm -hmm. And if you were to get involved in activism, I think that you have a responsibility to the group mm -hmm. and you have to commit. Uh, and I, I'm just not inclined, yes. yeah. But has the backlash or, or conflation of the two ever been an issue for you in terms of creating backlash or, or even more subtle forms of resistance to your work? Um, I think other people may be more knowledgeable <laughs> about it. I think I'm, to me, I think that if you know, it hasn't come to me very much, uh, come to me mm -hmm. in my face, I just have to continue on my life. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, in many ways, a lot of this is fear, mm -hmm. and um, fear not just of what you know might be happening, but fear of the unknown. If I do this, what might happen? Mm -hmm. What might happen to my career? I think fear can be, um, you know, very paralyzing. And of course, everybody has fear. It's very difficult to sort of do a work, mm -hmm. make it go away. But I, I, you know, try to move forward. I think that you know, I just believe in what I'm doing, and hopefully things will be fine, you know. I mean, if you think too much about fear, you just become really paralyzed. And, and I, I think that I, I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm doing research and research that has been recognized. And I, and I think that is, is, um, is what I'm going to focus on. So do you have any advice for kind of young, aspiring law and society scholars? Um, I think it's always going to be a challenge being mm. a law and society scholar, as many interdisciplinary uh, scholars would, would tell you. Um, I think that I would say commit to this uh, to this uh, identity or commit to doing this kind of work. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be quite difficult, and there's going to be ups and downs. And you know, I just I just work through them. Yeah.
And I mean, in, in terms of teaching, you huh, helm the law and liberal arts program here at Yale and US, which is a huh, double degree. Yeah. Uh, five years between Yale and US and, and the law school. So, I mean, how has the program panned out and what's your perspective on it? Well, I've only been <laughs> in this position for nine months. Okay. Uh, I took over this uh, uh, as head of studies um, in January of this year. So, I'm in some ways, I'm trying to learn the ropes and I, I have a clearer picture of how it works administratively. Uh, moving forward, I, we have very good students. Uh, some are more interested in law than liberal arts, some are interested in liberal arts and not so much law, and you have some some uh, for the good mix or balance of the two. Moving forward, if um, you know, of course I would like to have that stronger sort of interaction, intersection between uh, law and liberal arts, broadly mm -hmm. defined, uh, humanities, social sciences, and mm -hmm. sciences, and so I think we can do more of that, but you know, the program is still young. Um, and we are at a good. We're we're developing well, and I yeah, hope in the future there can be, uh, you know, more uh, students who can actually learn to integrate those two sides of what they are learning much more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so one final question. So tell us a bit more about what you're working on now, mm -hmm. and what you think you will be working on in ten years time if you were to hazard a guess. Okay. We ask this of all our interviewees. <laughs> Well, I am currently doing a project. It's been ongoing since 2016 and probably go on for a few more years. Uh, it's a project looking at the mobilization as well as non-mobilization of state laws that uh, require adult children to provide uh, per, uh, maintenance, that means financial support to their parents. I'm interested in these laws in the context of Taiwan, mainland China, uh, Vietnam, and Singapore, uh, among ethnic Chinese in Singapore. The reason I choose these four societies is because, um, you know, every, every society has a different so-called filial piety tradition, and these four societies, uh, they, they have a, a, a Confucian tradition, or Confucian-informed kind of filial piety tradition. And so I'm conducting field work at different sites in these uh, four societies, of course, not, in, not all across the country and all these places, but selected sites for you know, urban, rural, provincial, and different age groups, uh, as well as legal experts and mediators and so on, to understand um, whether and how people uh, engage with this sort of law, does it have any relevance at all in their lives, and also talking to lay people, lay interviewers to understand how do they normally organize family relationships around the care of the elderly, what kind of, if there are problems, how do they resolve it? So you're not just looking at trouble cases per, uh, going through the formal legal system, but also trying to understand usually how these things work on the ground. So it's very sort of a classic sort of law and society kind of uh, study, uh, but of course in the context and about issues that I think has not as much attention in law and society scholarship. So. That's what I've been doing. Uh, what the theoretical framing, what the issues are going to, what the analysis is going to look like. That's uh, to come. I am. I don't know yet. Uh, as for your question about um, what I'll be doing in ten years, um, I honestly, I, I, it's very hard to tell. I mean, probably some other law and society project. But it's kind of a lame answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, how how do you come to these topics? I mean, do. Um, they come to me uh, based on issues that I care about, mm -hmm. I think. 
um, this parental maintenance law has been something that's something that stuck out to me uh, for a long time. Uh, I always wonder in that kind of context, uh, given this intimate relationship between parent and child, um, why would uh, how what why would a parent uh, uh, take the step toward legal action, and how would a child respond? And does this law actually have? Do people actually mm -hmm. use it? That's the that's the first question I have uh, as well. Maybe because it's also you know all of us have uh, whether it's family of your own choosing, also a biological NATO family. We all have family relationships to think about and contend with as we, especially as we get older, and perhaps. That also has a, has a relevance to, to me, yeah. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Till next time.